Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. My next guest is the daughter of a black poet, Alice Walker, and a white liberal lawyer who married in the 60s. She describes herself as a child of the movement, and her current memoir, Black, White, and Jewish, Autobiography of a Shifting Self, tells the story of trying to come to terms with her upbringing and her life, and is the story of coming into her own in the world, where she is now a writer, a television commentator. She has founded the Third Wave Foundation, which helps women between the ages of 15 and 30. Will you please welcome Rebecca Walker to West Coast Live. I was wondering at what age one is able to write a memoir of your life. You know, many people have said that, that, you know, you have to be, you know, 80 on your deathbed to write a memoir, but actually... No, then those usually don't get finished. Well, that whole looking back, you know, at death idea. But nowadays, I think you can write a memoir about just about anything. I could write something about being on this show. I could be, you know, um, memoir, the form has changed so much um, that it can really be about anything that's happened to you or anything that you see that you want to talk about. Uh, I started writing mine when I was 25, and it seemed a good time. I was uh, looking toward adulthood and knowing that I needed to make some kind of peace with my childhood. So in a way, it was was for you kind of a forward-looking, kind of a a coming to terms with where you'd been and how you then wanted to lead the rest of your life. Yes. I mean, I grew up in a very fragmented way, moving all around the country and moving back and forth between various communities, and I felt like I really needed to find a cohesive voice. Um, I needed to create a container in which all of those different pieces and sections and segments could come together. And so that's what I did. When, you're, uh, when your parents married, it was, it was uh, traumatic for your father's family. His mother declared him dead uh, and wouldn't want to talk with him. Uh, it also created later in, in life for your mother's side of the family issues too when they would look at you and see some of your father in you, and they would see you as a white person in part, you know, as, as social attitudes changed. I mean, this is part of the shift you're dealing with and coming to terms with this all was reflecting off of you. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then as you moved from, I, I was struck that you would, you would live with your mother for two years and then live with your father for two years. And that seems like it would be wrenching to part and, and try to reconnect. I mean, that seems a long time apart. Yes. Uh, No. uh, uh, Yeah, it was very difficult. My parents came up with this custody arrangement that was uh, two years in each place. So when they divorced when I was eight, my mom uh, ended up moving here to San Francisco, and my father stayed on the East Coast, and I went back and forth every two years. It was very difficult. I think um, I would probably not devise that custody arrangement for my child. Um, I think they thought they were doing something... Um, progressive and um, perfectly balanced, you know, that I would be spend this equal time with each and uh, get to spend some good time in each place. But really, I ended up changing schools every year, 
and moving between um, such very different worlds. You know, with my father, I lived with a kind of um, upper-class Jewish suburban community. And of course, with my mom here in the Bay Area, I lived in a very um, urban, African-American, sort of bohemian world. Um, and going back and forth between those was very um, uh, demanding as a child. I, I was also an adolescent, so as you all know, adolescence is all about feeling like you're part of a community and getting acceptance. And so every time I switched, I felt like I had to become a different person in order to get that acceptance. Um, and so the book is really about that process of morphing, of adapting, of um, really learning how performative race and class and culture really are. Because what I, what I came to understand was that in each place I had to put on a kind of cultural mask in order to belong. And that was really the gift of my experience as well, is that I learned ultimately um, that so much of, of, of what we perform to belong is a mask and that it can come off and must come off in order for us to know who we truly are, which is the self underneath that mask. Would you get help from either your father or your mother in trying to work through this at the time? Were you, were you aware of this, you know? Uh, I think my parents, no, not, not a lot. Um, I think my parents were very, um, they were very committed to the work they were doing. You know, my father was a civil rights lawyer and activist who was very involved in desegregating public schools in the South. My mother, as many of you know, was very committed to her work. Um, and I think they, coming from the very intense backgrounds that they came from, my mother growing up in the segregated South, my father, a Jewish uh, young person right after World War II in Brooklyn, New York, I think they kind of felt like, you know, what problems could you possibly have, you know? <laughs> you know, you go to good schools, you eat, nobody's telling you you can't go anywhere or do anything. Um, so they pretty much left me to figure these things out on my own, um, which was very difficult. Yeah, one of the sort of telling episodes in your book was when you were in a class and some of the, your, the, the, the black girls would say you were or you get the sense that they were you were betraying them because you were doing well, you were answering questions, you were behaving like a white girl. Right, yeah, there's that whole crazy um, you're not cool if you do well in school thing happening in many of our communities. And um, I definitely experienced that, you know, people wanting me to um, dumb up in a way and in order to prove that I was down with blackness, you know, which is really... Um, a fairly contemporary phenomenon, you know, when, when you talk to our ancestors, our elders, you know, there's always an emphasis on being brilliant, doing absolutely impeccably in school, and that's what I was raised with, you know, so it was very shocking for me when I got to junior high to be told, oh, you know, you're acting like a white girl for reading, you know. Um, and I, I hear from many young people who come to my talks that that is still very much true, and they have to really fight for their right to be intellectual as people of color. You've sort of combined some of your father's work and your mother's work, I mean, writing and also political activism. What was the impetus for being involved in setting up this Third Wave Foundation, and what do you see as the Third Wave? Um, 
Third Wave, God, it seems like so long ago now, but uh, Third Wave was founded in... Are we into a fourth wave now? Well, I get letters from girls saying, I'm in the fifth wave, I'm <laughs> the sixth wave. You know, it's great. I love that. Um, Third Wave was born in 1992. I was graduating from college. Um, I was looking out into a country, into a culture that was, frankly, extremely disturbing. Um, the Rodney King verdict had just come down. Um, the LA Rebellion, uh, the Bush administration was doing everything it could to annihilate reproductive freedom. Um, police brutality was at an all-time high. I mean, it was sort of, you know, uh, AIDS and, and um, HIV prevention and discussion was just, you know, not happening. And I felt very strongly, as someone who had been involved in campus activism, that I wanted to create some kind of organization, some kind of community that could respond in a very um, exciting, energetic way to these issues that, that we were facing. And um, there was also this whole talk in the media that uh, young people were not interested in politics, that we were apathetic. Um, there were people saying that feminism was dead. And I really wanted to sort of do something that spoke to all of that. So Third Wave Direct Action Corporation was born. Um, and we did lots of direct action projects uh, in the beginning. Uh, we did a huge voter registration drive, registering people in low-income communities, mostly women of color. We went to non-traditional registration sites like unemployment offices, welfare offices, uh, correctional facilities. Um, registered, you know, I think 25,000 new voters in inner cities. We did literacy campaigns. Um, various direct action projects. Ultimately, what we found was that we spent almost all of our time raising money. <laughs> and, uh, and that basically, in order to really feed a movement, um, what we would have to do is create uh, a philanthropic arm. And so then Third Wave Foundation, which is what's now thriving, was born. And Third Wave Foundation is the only national activist philanthropic organization serving young women between the ages of 15 and 30. And that age, because you, you set that, that sort of demarcation because? That age because what we found was that uh, only 4% of all philanthropic dollars, so all the money that you all give to organizations, only 4% of that money goes to women's organizations. And of that 4%, only 1.5% goes to serve girls in the ages of 15 to 30. It's a very underserved community. Um, and so now what we do is we give grants up to $5,000 um, in three different areas. One's reproductive freedom. So we get calls every week at our office for young women who need direct cash grants to have abortions. This is a very um, important part of what we do. As you know, in many counties in America, there are no abortion providers. Uh, so young women have to travel uh, they have to incur enormous costs to, to get these uh, procedures. So we make direct cash grants to them if they need them. Uh, we give up to $5,000 a year for scholarships for young women who have demonstrated a commitment to activism. Um, and we also give grants to young women who are starting their own businesses because we're very uh, interested in economic empowerment and development. And how, how much are you involved in choosing who gets what? I mean, is it kind of an odd, you know... Uh, kingly thing to be doing? No, actually not. It's very democratic, much to my chagrin sometimes, because <laughs> I just want to be able to do whatever I want, but no. Um, actually, I'm not that involved in the day-to-day -day anymore. I, I um, as a founder, 
at a certain point I realized that the organization would be better served if I left. Uh, I think many founders find that if you stay too long, you kind of inhibit the leadership. You know, people are afraid to take on the responsibility of leading because there you are and they're constantly... The big starter, the entrepreneur who got it going. Now, My, uh, Michael Franti and Spearhead were here. They're, they've got a political message. They're, they're getting it out through art and music. Your mother has done that through literature. And you seem to be taking sort of a more direct kind of action to deal with political goals. I mean, are there other ways that you're also trying to change the world? Um, actually, I at this point I write pretty much. That's what I do. Um, but I, you know, I'm raising a child. I'm raising a boy. I'm, I'm hoping that I can do my part in creating a man who is not afraid to speak his emotions, who is... Um, sensitive to the troubles of the world, you know. How, how old is your son? He's 12. And how's he doing with that? He's okay. You should, you'll talk to him one day and he'll tell you <laughs> all the ways that I screwed up. But, uh, you know, we, we try. You know, I think, I think so many of us understand at this point. I'm doing an, another book on masculinity called Putting Down the Gun, New Masculinity. I think so many of us who are raising boys or who have to really deal with this intense masculinity box that we're all given, understand how important this work is of raising new men, you know. Um, what else do I do? Do you, do you talk with your father about raising, raising a boy and what it's about the masculinity issue? My dad and I are still working through race, class, gender, <laughs> you know. <laughs> we haven't gotten to masculinity yet. Uh, but how, how is masculinity different from gender? Well, it's not, actually. It's, it's very important. But I think right now, me and my dad are, are working through um, our own very specific relationship dynamics. You, you, you wrote about estrangement from him. I mean, was there, how was a rapprochement made or begun? Uh, well, I got really mad, <laughs> you know, and uh, did a lot of kind of acting out, yelling at him demanding that he pay attention to what I was saying about how I was raised. And, uh, and we kind of took it from there. He, he, he got it. Um, I think both of my parents have really gotten it since the book. You know, I think that <laughs> it's, you know, it's kind of like, they, they, it's, you know, it's right there. Yeah. And, uh, um, but you know, my parents love me. I've always felt loved. I think there are so many sections in the book and so many experiences I've had in my life that have been, you know, very dangerous. You know, I found myself in very extreme positions. And I think the thing that kept me alive or that kept me together is that I really always felt loved. So I knew what that felt like. So I didn't go too far into that kind of unknown. Um, so with my father, you know, the love is there. Uh, it's just a matter of doing the work to really see each other and know each other and accept each other. Does, does having a son that you're raising have changed your perspective of your father then in some way? Oh, yeah. yeah. Being a parent, you know, you, I have total humility now that I didn't have before. Uh, it's so hard. Oh, my God. Um, and yet, um, it's very easy for me to be very involved in his life, in, in the kind of day-to-day. -day. Um, it's very easy for me to try to figure out what's going on in his mind and his psyche. And 
I think for my parents that was a little more difficult, and um, I still don't fully understand why that was so hard. You, you lead an active professional life, often speaking. Do you take your son along? How do you deal with separations from him? Does it bring back memories of your own childhood? Oh, God. <laughs> yeah, I think that's the hardest part, you know. Um, but I have a wonderful partner who, you know, is very committed, and, um, and we work it out. And um, I try not to be away for too long. How about the religious instruction? I mean, do you deal with the, the Jewishness? Are you you're interested in Buddhism, too, I mean, in, in your household? How does that, how do you explain your life to your son, who is now of the age to ask probably some very hard questions? <laughs> Uh, well, you know, I, f I feel that I'm culturally Jewish, and, and my spiritual home is, is probably Buddhism. I, I, I'm a real deep student of Buddhism. Um, with him, you know, I think we, my partner and I, we just, we talk a lot about what we believe, and we are, um, we try to integrate those principles into our everyday lives. Um, we do a lot of questioning in our house about, you know, what is God, and a lot of deconstructing of patriarchal religions, <laughs> you know. So I think he um, he understands that it's a process of 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 learning and being with the divine. And he's, you know, he, he I I have a lot of faith that he will find his own way and his own relationship with God. You uh, you make a point of 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 having no commas in black, white, and Jewish, you know. In the, in the title, that there's something of the way they all come together. And, and, the, and your book opens with somebody coming into your Yale room with a knife demanding to know how can you be all of these things. I mean, can you be all of these things? Well, I am. Yeah. So, yeah, you know, it's funny. My publisher, uh, one of the titles that, sh that, that they wanted me to use is I Am Possible, which was a nightmare to me. But, <laughs> but, uh, but, but yeah, this idea of... Um, you know, in our culture, there's a, there's a real um, desire to believe in a kind of racial purity that doesn't exist, you know. Um, and I wanted to really speak to that and, and talk about, you know, the way in which we're all mixed. We're all um, a hybrid. Um, even if it's not a racial hybrid, it's a spiritual hybrid or a cultural hybrid. Um, and yeah, the, the taking the title, the commas out, um, I wanted to, with words, with, with, um, with punctuation, kind of create this new thing that wasn't always just a mixture of these different things, but was something itself, something... Um, that was m greater than all did, did you think of coming up with a word? Actually, the original, the working title for this book is Morphology, um, because I really, it's not just about being mixed race, it's about being a child of divorce, it's about being a child of our generation, it's about a kind of uh, hypermobile, atomized existence uh, that I think many of us are coming to experience in this particular time, in this particular culture. Um, and so as I really wanted to talk about the ways in which we're all having to be fluid and we're all having to change and constantly adapt to new situations and new people and new communities. And um, I wanted to kind of ask the question, what is the self then? 
once we recognize that we are constantly changing and constantly in flux. Um, so morphology, I think. Um, Sounds like a Gil Scott Heron song. That's good. Yeah, I like Gil Scott. That's great. Um, well, it, it refers to kind of form, you know, your morphology is your, your form. But also I liked the idea of it working with the computer lexicon, which is about morphing, you know, that we're constantly, it's the study of, of morphing. Um, but black, white, and Jewish prevailed. My publishers refused. It's like Michael was talking about it when, the, when, you, when you talk about, you know, more complex, more profound things, you know, the people who are trying to make their money back look at you like you've lost your mind, you know. So they were like, morphology, <laughs> you know. <laughs> no one's going to know what morphology is, Rebecca. You know, black, white, and, you know. And it's difficult to, to try to negotiate that. Um, in some ways, I feel really good about the title because so many people have found it, I think, because of the title. But in another way, uh, I suffer, you know, because I, it's like a part of my vision is not complete, you know. Rebecca Walker. The book is called Morphology in Her Heart. In the bookstores, it's called Black, White, and Jewish, Autobiography of a Shifting Self. And it's published by Riverhead Books. Rebecca Walker. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here. And we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.